Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to this episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael G. Van of Sacramento State University, but you, you can call me Mike. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Viet Thanh Nguyen of the University of Southern California, author of Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War. Viet Thanh Nguyen is best known for his novel, The Sympathizer, a New York Times bestseller and winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. It also won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, the Edgar Award for Best First Novel from Mystery Writers of America, the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction from the American Library Association, and a number of other awards. He is a university professor, the Errol Arnold Chair of English, and Professor of English, American Studies, and Ethnicity and Comparative Literature at the University of Southern California. He has won numerous awards, including the Guggenheim and MacArthur Foundation Awards, and is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. He is also the author of Race and Resistance, Literature and Politics in Asian America, and the the collection of short stories, The Refugees. He's the editor of The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives, and NPR listeners will know that his most recent publication is Chicken of the Sea, a children's book written in collaboration with his six-year-old son, Allison. Today we'll be discussing Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War, which was a finalist for the National Book Award in Nonfiction. The book came out with Harvard University Press in 2016. Professor Nguyen, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on. And I I have to just state right out that I'm a total fanboy, uh, absolutely love your work. So this is really a great honor for me to, uh, to get to chat with you about this book. And I wanted to get this book in particular, uh, Nothing Ever Dies, on new books in history, because it's a book that def- that I felt slipped under the radar of most historians. But I thought that it was a book that we should, um, that historians should definitely be aware of. So we normally start um, interviews on new books in history by asking the author to tell us about themselves and how they came to write this particular book. For you, this is sort of a silly and kind of obvious question as you start the book by placing yourself, your birth, your identity as Vietnamese American refugee in the text. So <laughs> understanding that, please tell us about yourself and how you came to write <laughs> Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War. Well, I, I think one of the reasons why it might have fallen under the radar of many different people's uh, <laughs> radars is that I think it's a it's an interdisciplinary book that uh, is working in different registers. And so it's not a conventional history book. It's also not a conventional cultural studies book or theory book and so on and so forth. And the reason why it's written the way it is, I think I was just driven by sort of a personal um, amb- ambition in writing this book to do something that would be, you know, theoretical about memory and how it works, but also uh, something that was very personal to me that would incorporate elements of my, of my autobiography uh, and one that would also speak to my training in literary and cultural studies. So all these things are happening. And 
you know, it, the roots of the project are, are quite personal, as you alluded to. I was born in Vietnam, uh, fled the country as a, as a very young refugee with my parents, grew up in the United States, totally conversant in American culture and certainly uh, conversant in the American way of remembering the Vietnam War and uh, or forgetting in the Vietnam War as well. And I felt that despite the enormous amounts of material that Americans have produced about the Vietnam War, that there were still some serious oversights uh, in terms of what Americans were looking for and how they were looking for it. And that was true also for how the Vietnamese were dealing with it as well. And this project started off as a compensatory project, trying to fill in the gaps of, of memory and became something else by the end. I mean, I think it does try to fill in gaps in memory in both Vietnam and the United States, but also from the perspectives of the Vietnamese refugee population and from other populations like the Koreans who also fought in this war. But besides filling in gaps, the book is also an attempt to talk about how we remember and, and how we forget and what might constitute uh, a just memory and a just forgetting, which were in the end, the really important philosophical questions for me. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's, yes, it's a very interdisciplinary book. And that's one of the things I absolutely love about it. It forced me to, to read and think outside of my, uh, my sort of uh, intellectual silo as a historian. Um, who, who was your intended audience for the book? When I first started writing this, it was my second, supposed to be my second academic book. My first academic book was about Asian American literature. It was a very sort of, you know, dissertation oriented book that anybody in literary and cultural studies would recognize methodologically. And I wanted to write a second book about, uh, about Vietnam in some way and, and about being Vietnamese American. That was always my original ambition going to graduate school. But in the early 90s, in an English doctoral program, I was told by my department chair, you can't write anything about Vietnam. You're not going to get a job. So I just had to postpone it to the second book. And it just became more and more complicated. I think if, if the book had been your conventional academic book about Vietnamese American memory about the war, I probably could have done that in about five or six years. And, but as I delved into it, I, I, I just got, I thought that was too limited of an approach because again, event, what I had to realize was that I just wasn't interested in filling in a gap by talking about how an excluded population has remembered this war in this case, Vietnamese Americans. But I wanted to talk about the processes by which exclusions and memory take place which would mean that I'd also have to talk about how Vietnamese and Vietnamese Americans, despite being erased from American memory, have themselves engaged in their own processes of erasure. Now, that, that process was what was really compelling for me to think about and took a long time to, to work through that issue. And then the other thing is that I'm also a fiction writer. And as I... So, I, so we've heard. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> academics have a hard time dealing with that, you know, because uh, I think the true interdisciplinarity for me was not really working across multiple academic disciplines. It was working from academic writing to, to fiction writing or creative writing. Mm -hmm. You know, learning how to write non-academically took me a couple of decades. So that was the real reason why the book took so long to, to write. I mean, the gap between my first academic book and this book was uh, 14 years. And a lot of it had to do with just my struggle to learn how to be a writer, not in the academic sense, which I already knew how to do, but a writer in the broad sense. And my audience in that case was not just going to be, first of all, other English professors. It was going to be as broad of an audience as I could come up with, not Oprah's audience, but you know, at least I wanted to write a book that, that fellow academics in different disciplines could, write, could read and understand. And then 
I had written a whole bunch of articles struggling to, you know, get to this moment, this, this writerly moment. And then I, then I interrupted myself to write a novel, The Sympathizer. And um, when The Sympathizer was done in 2014, my publisher and I decided not to publish the book until 2015 to align with the 40th anniversary of the end of the, the war in Vietnam. And that gave me well over a year of nothing to do. So I, I went back to this project that uh, would become Nothing Ever Dies. I looked at all the academic articles that I'd written. And I thought, I don't want to publish a collection of articles or essays. I want this to be a book with a narrative that would be organic. So I just threw out all those essays, not the ideas, but just I threw out the writing. And I just in that one year wrote the book from scratch. Um, and I'd written and finished the first draft by the time I went on book tour with The Sympathizer. And on tour with The Sympathizer, I met a lot of booksellers, people who run bookstores. And I, and I had some interesting conversations with them about what am I doing now? It was Nothing Ever Dies. And I thought, these people are very intelligent. They're just not academics of any kind. I want my book to be able to reach them as well. And so that was the final layer of the book, that I wanted this book to be, to speak broadly to intelligent, interested people who were not necessarily academics. And I have to say that as gratifying as it has been to see that academics have indeed read this book, including people from all kinds of disciplines, I never would have anticipated reading this book from law to clinical psychology and things like this. What was really gratifying is having lay people read it. And I get messages from, you know, students, from American veterans of the war, just from interested people that saying that the, they, they've been able to, to, to read this sometimes with, with difficulty, but oftentimes they don't make any mention of the difficulty and simply talk about, you know, how meaningful the book has been to them. And that's just been enormously gratifying. Well, it, uh, it's on my list of books that I give as uh, presents to people, as Christmas presents. And I, uh, I also put it into the hands of a high-level uh, administrator in the CSU system in charge of international programs and said, must read this book. So that's, that's my little <laughs> approval. <laughs> and it, it, it's beautifully written. I mean, it's just, it's just so engaging. And one of the things I love about it is how wide-ranging it is and um, the way it engages film, art, history, literature, um, uh, uh, photography, uh, graphic, uh, graphic memoirs, graphic novels. Um, so in, in your methodology, you place art at the center and, um, you, you make an argument for the importance of, of art for memory, historical memory and history. Can, can you speak, uh, speak to that point? Like what, um, and especially, you know, keep in mind, this is mostly historians listening. You know, what, what, why should historians really think about art in, uh, the significance of historical memory? Well, I was driven to write about art and you know, all of its related subfields from literature to cinema to memorials and monuments and so on, because that's my natural gravitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew, I mean, I, it would be facetious or it'd be crazy for me to, to try to match a historian uh, in terms of, you know, historical methodologies about archives and, and all that type of thing. So I wasn't really interested in writing a conventional history about this. Um, I was driven by the object by which I was studying, which was, you know, the memory of a war. And, uh, you know, in terms of trying to work with my own natural inclinations towards artistic versions of, of uh, remembrance, it, it, it struck me that while historical narratives, his, you know, historiography, historical books and so on are obviously really important. And I learned a lot from, from, from reading historians. For most people, those, these are not the ways that they're going to encounter the past. Um, they, I think people encounter the past through objects of popular culture and narratives of popular culture, whether that is 
through novels or through movies uh, or through uh, memorial spaces. Um, and this, it felt to me, was both the object that I, the set of objects I wanted to explore, but also these objects provided me with the, the kind of narratives that I wanted to work through as well. So just to give you some examples, you know, I mean, my exposure to the Vietnam War growing up in the United States was partly through the stories of the Vietnamese refugee community and my, and my parents, but mostly through reading American novels and American movie and watching American movies about this war. And I think for most Americans, this is exactly how they experience it, especially through movies and especially finally through Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, all of these works construct history and memory through particular kinds of narratives, including the narrative that Maya Lin deploys in the Vietnam Veterans Memorial also. Um, and so I wanted my work to both talk about these things, but also to induce feeling through uh, in its readers through the narrative that they would encounter in Nothing Ever Dies. So it was, you know, the, the structure of the book is important. The rhythm of the sentences of the book is important because I think that, you know, another, another issue that I have with academics is not enough emphasis is placed on feeling mm-hmm. in mm. academic writing, whether you know, the feeling that the academic writer herself or himself undergoes or the feeling that they hope to induce in their their readers. Um, I think primarily the reaction that most academic writers want to get out of their readers is an intellectual reaction, which is completely valid. But I think intellectual reactions also have an emotional basis as well. And as for myself, you know, the, the works of acad- academia that I've responded to the most, uh, initially were the theoretically compelling ones, which induce, you know, feelings of, of excitement, but eventually I was also really attracted to academic works that, that through their style and their unique voice also induced feelings of pleasure and uh, seduction and uh, things that we're not supposed to feel, I think, generally in academia. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's also why I think people respond very viscerally to history and memory when they feel something, not just at the level of argument, but at the level of narrative pleasure. And so that's where uh, nothing ever dies. Uh, works. Yeah, yeah, great. So, you know, if so, what, one of the games I play with my graduate students when we're we're dealing with a book is uh, you're working in uh, Barnes and Nobles or Borders or uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know which bookstore still exists these days, but you're you're a staff member and you have to place this book on the shelf. Where would you Where would you put this book? That's a good question because I don't know if I've ever if I've ever seen it in a bookstore. So I'm not sure <laughs> oh, no. where it would go. You know, I I assume people would stick it under uh, history or military studies or which is not. Uh, it's not military yeah, studies. It's not, it's not really military studies right. either or war studies. Whatever whatever mm-hmm. you call them. You know. So yeah, I mean, this is the other problem in terms of writing books that that are sort of unique to the demands of an object of study is that you just you just have to give yourself over to the object of study and not worry about classifications. And this is true whether we're talking about academic work or in the case of fiction, um, I've often often experienced the problem of classification as well. You know, does my work go under American literature or does it go under uh, Asian American literature and, and so on and so forth? So in the end, I wasn't really too worried about the classification mm-hmm. of the book. Okay. Okay. Um, so, yeah, a question about terminology. So in, in Nothing Ever Dies, you address the difficult terminology for the, the series of wars in mainland Southeast Asia in the 20th century. Um, obviously, you know, we, we know the phrase uh, Vietnam is a country and not a war. 
but so many Americans and so many people around the world say Vietnam to mean that war of the 60s into the 70s. Um, I've made it my mission as a world historian, as a Southeast a- scholar of Southeast Asia, to get my Americanist colleagues to say the American war in Vietnam. And I, I personally prefer um, uh, when I'm teaching to use first, second, and third Indochina wars. But that's a bit clunky and a bit too pedantic for, uh, I think, for most audiences. What, what terminology do you prefer for these wars? And, and, and do you have any thoughts on what's at stake with this, uh, this naming? Well, obviously, a lot of a lot is uh, at stake in the naming because these terms, except for the first, third, and uh, first, second, and third Indochina wars, are highly politicized. So, you know, American liberals who have any understanding of this war like to use American war in Vietnam, but if you use that term in front of Vietnamese refugees or Vietnamese Americans, they'll immediately accuse you of, of supporting communism because mm. that's the favorite term for uh, the victorious Vietnamese as well. So, and and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm fairly you know Catholic about all of this. I think there's many possible terms that you can apply to this war. I use them all fairly interchangeably. But in the book, I, I talk about the meanings of these names and why, what the complications in them are. Because I think it's important to acknowledge that naming wars is partly how we contain the meanings of wars. Um, obviously, for most people, as terrible as this war was for those who underwent it. Uh, for most people in the world, is this a line in a history book and a name? So mm-hmm. if you call it the Vietnam War, it means one thing. If you call it the American War in Vietnam, it means something else. And in the book, I just unfold the different complications of these terms, that the Vietnam War, as you said, is something Americans like to use because it objectifies Vietnam. It has a very particular um, meaning in American culture and memory as this bad, divisive um, war. If you use American War in Vietnam, it it uh, shifts the responsibility of the war to Americans, but it also validates a victorious Vietnamese perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to be cognizant of these of the implications of, the, yeah. of these terms that you use. And I say, well, look, uh, wh- why don't we call wars by something else? You could you you could use the terminology of the first, second, and third Indochina wars, which might be what wins in history books a hundred or two hundred years from now, as we look back retrospectively on this. Or perhaps we should call wars by by how many people died in them. So if that was the case, you know, this would be the war in which, for Americans, fifty-eight thousand plus Americans died, but for the Vietnamese, three million died. Or if you were to talk about this war in relationship to Laos and Cambodia, who were also involved, you'd have to talk about six million dead. Mm-hmm. And so the terms themselves, Vietnam and American War. The last thing to note is again. They center the names of countries, but these were not the only countries involved. Laos, Laos and Cambodia were also mm-hmm. involved. And even for American liberals and leftists to use the term the American war in Vietnam would, would still continue to erase the experiences and the existences of those two countries and their peoples. Yeah, it, it also elides the, the, Viet, the Vietnamese, and this really was a Vietnamese civil war that America inserted itself into. Right. What, um, what, may I ask what the... Um, what some of the terms used in the Viet Q or Vietnamese diaspora community would be? Uh, that's a good question. I think um, we just call it the war. The I war. mean, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't get engaged in like the academic yeah. conversations with with folks about that. I mean, just in the families, like, oh, that's the war, you know. And that's one of the things yeah. I point out in the book is that for everybody who's been through a war, it's always the war. Right. So in the United States, uh, we, 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 when we say the war, we usually mean World War II. Even the whole 
terminology of like post-war mm-hmm. is all based around World War II um, because it's the central defining event um, in which Americans could feel good for them about themselves in the 20th century. Uh, so the Vietnam War doesn't ascend to that status for Americans, but it does for everybody in Vietnam who's been through it. Um, and so, yeah, I think in the Vietnamese uh, familial, colloquial context that I'm used to, it was always simply the war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, in the in the in the book, getting the argument of the book, um, you you state that the book is an argument for quote a complex ethics of a just memory. This drives both to remember one's own and others, while at the same time drawing attention to the life cycle of memories and their industrial production, how how they are fashioned and forgotten, how they evolve and change. I think that that quote really captures you know the, the book as a whole. And in the book, you call for a just memory, but in the end, also a just forgetting. So, could you unpack these terms for us, and and, and what 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 you mean by calling for an ethics of a just memory? Well, we'll talk about the industrial part of memory later. I just okay. want to note now that I think I, I wanted to include the industrial part because I think memory studies is very comfortable talking about the ethics of memory, right? Mm-hmm. But not so much about the industries of memory, the economics of how memories are made, produced, received, circulated, and so on. But the ethics of memory itself is also a very complicated topic. And I I was always interested in the question of what might constitute justice in memory, because anybody who's been a part of a population that feels that their experiences have been erased or excluded or marginalized in some way, feel themselves to be victims of an, in, of an injustice. And so they demand to be remembered, they demand to be included, and this is their gesture for uh, justice. So that's very important, and I do think it's crucial that excluded populations be remembered. And in the American context, if we're t- just talking about the United States, that would mean both uh, the Vietnamese people in Vietnam, but also the Vietnamese refugees of South Vietnam who came to the United States. So ironically, in the case of the United States, Americans have been more interested in remembering the victorious Vietnamese to the extent that they remember any Vietnamese at all versus their own former Vietnamese allies. And so a lot of South Vietnamese people and their descendants clamor to be remembered in this fashion. And that was the initial impetus for this book until I realized something that was always present, which is that in as much as Vietnamese refugees from South Vietnam feel themselves to be unjustly forgotten both in Vietnam and in the United States. The problem is that they themselves enact the very same processes of erasure and forgetting. They're very quick to demonize their former, uh, their, their, their Vietnamese enemies in Vietnam. They don't want to hear uh, alternative perspectives. There's a very dominant view of how the war should be remembered and everything else is considered uh, uh, treason. So a just, a just memory needs to be about more than simply including the forgotten. A just memory also needs to address the processes by which groups are uh, both remembered and forgotten, and everyone has to be held accountable. All groups have to be held accountable to a just memory, to an ethics of memory. 
can't simply be the case that we say we can only remember the victimized and the weak and the forgotten and the poor as if those populations have never themselves also in, enacted the exact same processes of exclusion. And this is, I think, for me, important in the American context because a lot of guilty American liberals and leftists will say, well, we, uh, we've forgotten the Vietnamese people. We've got to remember the Vietnamese people without realizing that the Vietnamese people that they've elevated as, as victims and, and heroes have themselves engaged in these very same processes of, of exclusion and forgetting. And then finally, of course, after all of this, uh, when, when is it possible to forget? Also a very difficult question as well. And the short answer, and I draw heavily from Paul Ricoeur's uh, Memory History Forgetting, the short answer is that there is no just forgetting without justice in all aspects of society. So an ethics of memory that is divorced from a material context, from understanding how memory and forgetting are embedded in the economics and politics of a society can never actually work. You can't have an idealistic ethics of memory. You always have to talk about an ethics of memory and a just memory and a just forgetting in the context of how an entire society operates. So we can really only have a just forgetting where everyone is okay leaving the past behind them when the root causes of inequality and injustice have been addressed, which is why just forgetting is really, really hard to do, which is why in the United States, Americans cannot actually just forget slavery or the Civil War because the root inequalities and, and divisions and, and structural problems that, that gave rise to the Civil War and, and slavery are still with the United States today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And, and you're also very critical of any notion of victimization and the, the damage that does to, to the subject, correct? Yeah, because I think that uh, it's very tempting to, to want to be the victim um, everybody wants to be the victim. Even Americans want to be the victims. Uh, like, for example, after 9-11, the immediate American response to that for, for pretty much the overwhelming majority of Americans was, we're the victims here. Um, and victimization is, is so obviously sometimes very important because there are real victims out there. Uh, but victimization also allows a very convenient forgetting of everything that we ourselves, whoever we are, might have done to other people, how we ourselves might have victimized others. And that enables uh, all kinds of terrible things to happen as a result, whether it's interpersonal crimes or whether it happens to be nations committing wars. You know, the United States sees itself as a victim, which helps to justify American wars overseas. From the perspective of a a minority, like uh, being a Vietnamese refugee, it's obviously also very tempting to embrace victimization because um, it, it allows us to, to, to uh, dwell on and even melancholically enjoy the damages that have turned that have made us into minorities, that have turned us into to refugees. But it also is very you know disempowering in a lot of ways because who wants to be who wants to be a victim? Um, the United States, in its role as a global power and in Vietnam, uh, was highly castigated for what happened during the Vietnam War because many people, including Americans, felt that the United States had created so many victims, had done so many terrible things. But the United States, as a, as a victimizer in that situation, also was able to accrue all kinds of uh, narrative power because it controlled, the United States controlled the means of storytelling, at least on the, on the global stage. And if you control the means of storytelling, you want to be at the center. And to be at the center 
it's, it's oftentimes much more effective to be the victimizer than to be the victim. That's certainly what we see in American movies about the Vietnam War. And maybe the last thing to say here is, you know, a, a lot of Americans do look at Vietnamese people as the victims of this war. And that might be a good thing because it acknowledges American guilt. But it, at the same time, forever pins Vietnamese people of all backgrounds to being these inarticulate victims of American policy and the American military and American soldiers whose only fate is to suffer. Whereas the real drama would be around investigating the guilt of Americans. And this is a, a very subtle way by which Americans continue to return themselves to the center of the wars that they fight. Even in acknowledging American atrocities, we continue to center American perspectives and American experiences and nothing has changed. Um, the, the exact same sort of liberal framework of guilt that Americans have applied to the Vietnam War continues to apply to our current wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and so forth, and so on and so forth, where despite our acknowledgement, perhaps, that many, many, many more Iraqis and Afghans and people from other countries have suffered because of these wars, we continue to recenter the experiences and the stories of Americans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And you, you I believe in the book, you, you argue that, uh, you know, the the Vietnam War, the Second Indochina War, American War, is is just one moment in a 20th century American war in in the greater Pacific and in, in the world, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And that's another problem with naming wars. Mm-hmm. If you name a war, there's a beginning date and an end date. Yeah. And you think, well, the Vietnam War, 1965 or so to 1973, it's over. And that is, I think, uh, a false way of looking at many wars. Um, if we look at the United States, my, my view of the United States is that it is a military industrial complex. It's, it's, it's very difficult to talk about the United States apart from the wars that it has fought to establish itself as a country and to expand its frontiers and to continue to exercise global power. And in that sense, I think thinking of the United States as having been on a very long time war footing which sometimes peaks in wars like the Korean War and the Vietnam War, but but most of the time is that this sort of low-level hum of, of military operations is really critical because it allows us to see how the Vietnam War came out of the previous wars that America has fought and how the Vietnam War is uh, continues to influence and to shape contemporary American wars as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you were speaking, I, I, I flashed on the uh, the classic Saturday Night Live skit with John Belushi, and he's, he's playing Henry Kissinger, and he's being interviewed by Barbara Walters. And she says, you know, what was your proudest moment uh, as Secretary of State? He said, well, receiving the Nobel Peace Prize for ending the war in Vietnam. And she says, well, what was your most uh, disappointing moment as Secretary of State? He says, well, 1975, when the war actually ended after having received the prize. Um, so the, the book's organized into uh, into three sections. I just want to go through a few minutes in the structure of the book. Um, your prologue and the section on just memory where you sort of set up the book. And you've got three sections, ethics, industries, and aesthetics. Um and each each have three chapters. Uh, the section on ethics, on remembering, uh, has chapters entitled "On Remembering One's Own," "On Remembering Others," and "On the Inhumanities." Can you can you talk us quickly talk us through this this section and what the what the arguments are? I argue that there are three major models of ethical memory. And the first one, the ethics of remembering our own, is the most dominant version in any society. Of course, we want to remember our own. If we don't remember our own, who will remember us? And this is true whether we're the majority or whether we're the minority. 
the ethics of remembering others is what would be considered the liberal version of memory. Here we, we worry about whether we've forgotten or excluded anybody. Um, and that comes in, in two, two versions, both the liberal and the radical. I mean, the liberal, the liberal version says, okay, we've, we've forgotten other people, we have to include them. Uh, the radical version says, not only have we forgotten other people, we've victimized them. And we are, we are the, the victimizers. And this narrative of we being the victimizers is very common in the, in the United States. Uh, and then finally, though, I argue that these models are all insufficient for an ethics of, of just memory. We really need to acknowledge instead that it's not simply that the other in our memory is either the villain or the victim. It's that the other is as human and inhuman as we are. You know, so if we're to look at this in the context of the Vietnam War, I don't want the Vietnamese people to be, to be remembered as either victims or heroes, which is how they fall into the binary of American memory. Having grown up among Vietnamese people uh, and read a lot about the Vietnamese experiences of the war from all sides, I can safely say Vietnamese people are just like Americans in the sense that they are fully capable both of being victimized and of victimizing. That's the complexity of Vietnamese history that we need to understand, of anybody's history that we need to understand, and I think which Americans uh, poorly poorly understand. Uh, this is directly connected to the fact that we ourselves, whoever we happen to be, in this case Americans, have to acknowledge that not only are we the victims, but we are also capable of victimization also. So what I argue in that chapter is that inhumanity, our own inhumanity, is the thing we least want to acknowledge. We want to blame the inhumanity of war on the inhumanity of our enemies and our others, but we really need to acknowledge both the humanity of the enemy and our own inhumanity at the same time. That's why it's this book is a project not of the humanities, but of the inhumanities, which I think is, for me, a more compelling subject to think about. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I thought that uh, the use of that term was just a, a really great uh, sort of intellectual provocation and really uh, stops, and, stops us and forces us to think um, the the methodology in this chapter, the, the sources, you, you draw a lot from your uh, visiting um, uh, memorials and graveyards in in Vietnam and and the more you know the famous site to Americans in in Washington D.C. Can you talk a bit about your experience visiting some of the uh, memorials and graveyards in Vietnam today, or in, when, at the time you were researching this? Yeah, it, one one of the more interesting parts of write, about writing this book, given that I'm a, a literature scholar and a writer, was doing the field work, which mm-hmm. you know, got me out of my out of my chair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, unlike the United States, the the memory of the dead in Vietnam is is very present, right? Uh, oh, yes. In the United States, you have to make a pilgrimage, travel to Washington D.C. to see this very specific memorial. For the most part, there are smaller memorials scattered around the United States and traveling versions of the of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, but they're they're not always present in the American landscape, and then as a matter of fact, I think their their manifestations are are fairly rare. Uh, in Vietnam, however, I traveled from the north to the south along the Central Highway, Highway One, and along the highway, the the memorials and the cemeteries of the dead are absolutely visible. They've been deliberately built on the very side of the road, so you just cannot miss seeing them. And every village has its own small cemetery. And, and uh, you know, every, every major battle has, has a kind of a memorial or a cemetery to mark it and so on. So the, the visual presence of the dead, especially, or actually only, 
the dead of the North is present throughout the country. You just cannot escape it. Uh, now you can just drive by and ignore them, which is probably what happens in most cases as we drive by and ignore statues. But nevertheless, the state has been very, very deliberate in putting these cemeteries in a way, in such a way that they are a part of the visual landscape for anybody who is uh, traversing Vietnam. And so that, that, that I think is quite different than the way that Americans have remembered it. Um, Americans have, have remembered this war mostly through their movies and they've, they've broadcast, you know, a simplified version of history through the movies all over the world. And the Vietnamese not having that same kind of narrative power have been forced to narrate the war to themselves in an equally simplified version through the use of uh, memorials, monuments, and cemeteries. And, and the museums, the War Remnants Museum and, 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 and others. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's, that segues nicely into the next section of the book, Industries, which has the chapters on war machines, on becoming human, and on asymmetry. Could you talk to us about this section, Industries, and what, what do you mean by Industries? Well, one of the ironies about the, the war in Vietnam is that usually it's a case that the victors write the history, but this might be the first war in history where the losers got to write the history. So <laughs> yes, the Americans, yeah. let's say, generally speaking, lost this war, you know, uh, without getting into all the nuances. And yet, uh, and, and the war itself was, has been perceived globally and within the United States for the most part as a bad war. You know, even Americans who supported the war, you know, bear with them the residue of these terrible images of American journalism, global journalism, and uh, American films and so on about the war. The irony here, though, is that even though the war has pretty much been roundly condemned globally, it's been the American version of the past that most people around the world are familiar with. So, for example, I went to Italy, gave an interview with a communist journalist <laughs> who was, you know, completely against American imperialism, but loved Apocalypse Now. And she did not in any way detect the irony of this, that Apocalypse Now was a movie in which the American experience was centered and Vietnamese voices were uh, pretty much completely erased. And so the United States, uh, because it is a global industrial and post-industrial power with, you know, uh, has been able to export its stories globally, especially through the mechanisms of, of, of Hollywood and, and American popular culture. The United Vietnam, you know, won the war uh, despite being a much weaker power. Uh, but what that has meant is that post-war, it has not had the capacity to export its stories in the same way. It has a film industry, for example, but the film industry is literally decades behind Hollywood. It has a publishing industry. But it it censors its own writers for the most part, and writers who write in Vietnamese have great difficulty in having their works translated into another language. So and 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 if they're if if they were to export their uh, film or literature, it's not going to find a great audience in the Vietnamese diaspora, correct? Absolutely, and you know the irony of it, you know, is I've seen, for example, um, Vietnamese movies of the of the Vietnam War. They 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 generally do not look that good. They're they're no in no way going to be competitive at the level of the global blockbuster with Hollywood movies. And so, you know, in the same way that the Americans were able to apply enormous amounts of firepower to this country, which did not in the end subdue it, Americans have applied the enormous firepower of their memory machinery to this war. And, but in this case, they've won at the level of, of, of memory. In Vietnam, of course, the dominant version of memory is still victorious Vietnamese memory, which 
uh, it's surprising for a lot of Americans. Americans have grown up, you know, imbibing the American point of view of this and not realizing that the American point of view is also is propagandistic. They go to Vietnam, they encounter the Vietnamese point of view, and a lot of Americans think it's only propaganda that they're encountering there without realizing that they're caught between two different versions of propaganda that are happening. It's just that the American version is a lot more powerful. So this is what I mean by the industries of memory, that that we have to look at memory not as, as an individual, not only as an in individual phenomenon or as a cultural or collective phenomenon, which is how memory studies has talked about uh, group memories, but as industrial as well. That nations or groups that are more powerful economically and politically will have greater capacity to determine memory narratives. And so not only do I talk about the United States in this regard, but there's a chapter in this section on Korea. Um, Korea was as poor or poor, South Korea was as poor or poor than Vietnam in the 1960s, but because of decisions that the Korean government made in relationship to this American war, where it, Korea was able to transform itself. So 300,000 South Korean troops were sent to fight in South Vietnam, ostensibly as volunteers on the behalf of Americans. These men uh, sent money home from their salaries uh, as remittances. That helped Korea develop. And a lot of Korean um, conglomerates, the Chaebol, the companies like Daewoo and Samsung and so on, uh, were working in Vietnam as American contractors, and this was the beginning of the transformation of the Korean economy. So fast forward 40 or 50 years, South Korea is now one of the top 10 economic powerhouses in the world. They too have, a, have a, a an industry of memory about what happened in Vietnam. And it's really interesting to look at because the initial early efforts to talk about this war uh, in literature and film in Korea in the 1980s and 1990s was very much like the American effort to look at this as a very terrible war that the Koreans found themselves caught up in, in which the Koreans also um, had, had did some terrible things. But over the decades, as Korea's economic and political wealth has grown, its film industry, music industry, pop culture industry has grown as well, has continued to make stories about this war, and the narrative has changed very much so, so that now the narrative about this war in, in uh, Vietnam for Koreans is that, well, we were forced to do this. The Americans were the real villains here, mm -hmm. and we were just other innocent pawns caught up in this experience. Mm -hmm. So they're also using their industry of memory to re-narrativize, to tell new versions of the past that are more palatable to the present for Koreans. Right, right. It was, and I, I recently visited the, uh, the War Museum in Seoul and the the section on uh, uh, the, the war in Vietnam was quite, was quite interesting. And, and I was also struck um, in the film Roma uh, from a few years ago. Um, you, you've, you've seen. You mean the Mexican film? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh, yes. Yeah. Um, the, the subplot there with the, um, the, the main character sort of terrible love interest and he's training, uh, training Taekwondo mm -hmm. and they're, they're South Korean, um, uh, government-sponsored uh, martial arts training, uh, for, and they're creating right-wing thugs to go after the uh, the students in 68. And I, I noticed that in the Korean War um, uh, Museum, there was a diorama showing martial arts training in South Vietnam as part of their effort. And it was just after I had seen that film, and it, 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 made, it made me think so much about um, non- non-American, non-global uh, North narratives of the Cold War. And cool. um, uh, these other national narratives, which obviously resonates with your book. Yeah. And, you know, the um, 
the scholar Quan Xing Chen mm-hmm. the term sub-imperialism to so talk right. about what's happening in Asia in terms of you know South Korea, for example. But you know, the narratives of victimization are, are very evident in the war memorial of Korea, their big yes. central museum. It's mostly about the Korean War. You know, that's the central haunting, you know, conflict in Korean memory. And there, you know, the narrative of the museum is we're the victims of communism and the North Koreans and the free world has come in to support us. And then when we successfully fought off the North Koreans and have this stalemate, we ourselves ascended to the global stage by becoming a country that would go out and help others. Right. And so there is no room, there's no wing devoted to the Vietnam War. Instead, there's a, a very small wing devoted to the expeditionary forces that Koreans right. sent globally. So there's a mention of a bunch of different countries where the Koreans uh, sent troops and so on. But undoubtedly, the focus of these rooms is on the Vietnam War. And there are all these dioramas and pictures and so on. It's very interesting because the Korean War in this museum is very bloody. I mean, they talk about martyrs and, and terrible atrocities and things like that. The Expeditionary Forces Room, especially with a focus on Vietnam, is purely is bloodless. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's literally just like, well, we were there to help the, the Vietnamese people. And they're, all, they're basically, you know, like these, these, these pictures of, of heroic Korean soldiers arriving in Vietnam and, and going back to Korea, but no pictures of battles, nothing like that, no, no combat, nothing of that sort. So there it's been completely sanitized as well. And it allows, to think, allows Koreans to think of themselves, again, only as victims of the North and communism and as people helping other victims in Vietnam. Yeah. And that's, that's completely at odds with the interviews and the conversations I've had with American war veterans about the Korean Expeditionary Force. And they talk about these guys being the biggest badasses and the most bloodthirsty and the, you know, the most sort of like off the chain, off the leash uh, kind of violence. And uh, a couple of the vets I interviewed spoke of that in a very uh, uh, adoring and <laughs> affirmative way. But the the, re- the reputation of the Korean uh, troops was really fierce, and these are these are troops from the the, the right wing South Korean dictatorship as well. Yeah, and and Vietnamese people certainly remember that as well. So it's interesting that the that the South Koreans have wanted to tone that down because you you think they might want to talk about their martial. Prowess. I mean, that would be one way to re-narrate the uh, the uh, the mm. terror that that Vietnamese people felt about about Korean soldiers. But I think the other reason um, for the re-narration of memory of, about the South Korean role is that you know again, South Korea is a global economic power at this point. It wants to have good trade relations. So South Korea and Vietnam have very strong economic and political relations. Um, I remember, for example, studying Vietnamese at the National University in Ho Chi Minh City. Almost all the students were were the children of Korean business people who were in Vietnam. So that relationship there has meant that troublesome aspects of the war have to be erased both by the Vietnamese government and by the Korean government. So the fact that Korean soldiers went to Vietnam and committed atrocities and massacres, which is documented fact has to be papered over in some way. And you know, the book talks about one incident where her, uh, South Korean soldiers went into this village in, uh, in central Vietnam and, and massacred 136 Vietnamese civil- civilians. Well, some of the Korean veterans in the years afterwards went, wanted to build a memorial to this incident and they provided the money for it. The, the Vietnamese villagers wanted the memorial to say that Korean soldiers killed Vietnamese people and because the fact that, that Korean veterans were funding this, what the memorial ended up saying was Vietnamese villagers were killed on this site without mentioning who was doing the, mm-hmm. the killing. Mm-hmm. And this, this killing site is only a couple of miles from the beach in central Vietnam around Da Nang, where now if you visit, 
it's completely transformed. It is, it is uh, all golf resorts, fancy hotels, this kind of thing. A lot of it built by Korean corporations, the same ones that were there during the Vietnam during the war. war. Yeah, yeah. No, the, just anecdotally, the um, the archives that I work in in Hanoi, the French uh, that has the French colonial period archives, one is in a neighborhood that's is entirely South Korean oriented businesses. All the signs are in Korean. It's great for me because I grew up in a half, half Korean household, so I can get all my comfort food in the various restaurants. But it's just it's just shocking that there's this you know this little colony of Korean. Um, uh, business people, um, and you, you, you move around Hanoi, and that Lottie and Samsung. I mean, this this is really the a major source of capital. I felt a um, bit ambivalent about that, you know, because at least it was a, mm-hmm. it was it was yes a sign of contemporary you know capitalist arrangements and so mm-hmm. on in Asia, but it was a relief to get away from the Western tourists, you know. Yeah. Yeah, in the yeah. center of. The oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's. A, I mean, I, I lived in Hanoi in the in the mid '90s, where I, I literally stopped traffic walking across the street, being a big white guy, to now where it's <laughs> no shortage of big white guys in the, the Ho Hong Kim neighborhood. Um, so uh, the the last section, aesthetics, uh, again has three chapters on victims and voices, on true war stories, and on powerful memory. Can you walk us uh, through that? And we're and I know we're we're coming up on on being uh, pressed for time here, but could you tell us about this last section? Well, this is where I get, it gets into, you know, how do we tell stories about the past? And I, I guess one way to just talk about these three sections is I was, I was just really interested in the effect that aesthetic form has on our memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, you know, when we talk about Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial, it's, it's become uh, a classic of memorial architecture uh, in the United States. And a lot of people talk about the beauty of the form, how it compels identification and memory and mourning and so on. Um, and I think that all that is valid, you know, uh, but it's possible that, that it doesn't work. I mean, I, I met at least one Swiss tourist who said, well, I went to the memorial and I didn't feel anything. So what do, what do forms actually do for us and in what way? And this was driven home for me by my visits to the, the sites in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, in which the war has been remembered everything from the War Remnants Museum in uh, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, and the, to the, uh, the S21 Museum in Phnom Penh, and many, many other smaller sites as well. If you go to these sites, uh, I remember my first visit to the War Remnants Museum um, when it was still just a collection of small buildings in the early 2000s. I was Before, before the big new uh, buildings. If you, if, if you go now, it's a big, big yeah. gray Bahamut. And yeah. we'll, yeah. I'll talk about that in just a bit. But I mean, I, I felt physically sick. Um, yeah. it's, it's basically an unedited, almost, collection of atrocity photos. And at that time, there were bottled fetuses of Agent Orange yeah. victims. They're still, still upstairs in War Remnants. There are still one or two. I, I, one or two. It used to be like a whole display yeah, case. Right, you know? right. And I, I just felt at the time, I can't even take a picture of yeah. what's going on in this museum. I felt, I felt that it was way too raw. Yeah. And if you go to the S21 Museum in Phnom Penh, uh, up until very recently, that was, that was likely the same experience. I remember visiting S21 in the killing fields in the same day and just returning to my hotel and not being able to do anything because I felt so terrible mm-hmm. this way after encountering the, 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 the raw images of what had happened in S21. So what's a better way of, of aestheticizing or remembering the past? Sort of the beautiful sheen 
of Western approaches symbolized by Maya Lin's um, wall in the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which allows us to think of death and memory as something beautiful and sad, or these really graphic, horrifying images in these Southeast Asian museums that show us exactly what a dead body or tortured body looks like. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to answer that question. It's simply that these forms, these aesthetics have very different effects and they're driven to a large extent by the material resources that societies have. So the United States has the capacity to produce what is considered world-class level memorialization and world-class level films and so on. And in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, they simply don't have that capacity. Now, what's happened if you go and you visit these museums over the course of 10 or 20 years is that you see, in fact, that they do change. So the War Remnants Museum went from a collection of, of tiny buildings uh, to becoming a gigantic gray edifice um, that follows more closely Western standards. So initially, if you went to the, to, to, the, to the museum, for example, they would have pictures of atrocities and then they'd have these like poorly worded a ungrammatical English captions, which only reinforces the sense for a Western visitor that this is something, you know, primitive, both in terms of aesthetics and, uh, uh, you know, museum curation. But now if you visit, a lot of that, most of the horrible stuff has been edited out and the captions have also been transformed. So you, you're less likely to see what Westerners would consider propagandistic language about puppets and colonizers and, and uh, you know, bandits and things like this in terms of characterizing what the Western presence. Um, is this a good thing or a bad thing? That now when uh, American or foreign visitors come to Vietnam, they're likely to encounter versions of the past that have been formally rendered in a way that would be more suitable for a Western taste. Likewise, at the S21 Museum, changes are, un are, are, are undergoing, are, under, are, are taking place because Japanese uh, curators who uh, worked at this really beautiful memorial uh, on Okinawa mm -hmm. for the peace, the peace Memorial, which is one of the best memorials, I think, in the entire world uh, devoted to war, uh, have, have had a hand in training the curators for, uh, for the S21 Museum. So inevitably, we'll see, we'll see changes there too. But, you know, if you go visit, to visit, it's still a very difficult place because Cambodia is still a very poor mm -hmm. country. But as wealth increases, um, people will people will want to change. You know, so one of the, the curators at the S21 Museum told me, you know, yeah, we do want to change because it's not beautiful the way things are. And I, I, I understand where he's coming from, you know, because do you want to see your people and your past rendered in this really atrocious fashion? Or would you rather try to create a museum that you know is going to be validated by these global Western dominated standards? Right. Why, you know, you know, in, in Phnom Penh, Khmer tourists, most of them don't want to go to the S21 Museum. Most of them want to go to the Royal Palace where they can see this beautiful rendition of the best parts of Khmer society, not these horrifying things that, that are happening and depicted in such a horrifying fashion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I'm doing this project where I'm working on the Tool Sling Genocide Museum, S21, the War Remnants Museum. The, um, and in Jakarta, there's the Museum of uh, Communist. Uh, uh, atrocities, which is this fervent anti-communist museum, all built about the same time, all very similar style-wise and their meaning. But um, the, one of the things I've been looking at is the sort of the silences around the um, the tool sling uh, genocide museum or S21. 
Um, one of which is there's very little discussion of the fact that the vast majority, like 99%, 95% of um, those who were, were tortured and then executed uh, there, the, the 14 to 17,000, were um, uh, Khmer Rouge, cadre. That they they were participants in the revolution, and that's sort of alighted, and it's touched it's touch on a bit more now, but that's a bit silenced. But the other huge silence, and this is relevant to um, to your work, is that the museum was set up not by Cambodians, not by Khmer, but by Vietnamese um, uh, Colonel Mai Lam, and then uh, also working with East German uh, advisors in the 1980s. And I was wondering how that uh, foreign hand complicates this Cambodian uh, memory site? Well, the foreign hand, as you mentioned, and the um, the fact that so many of these victims of S-21 were themselves Khmer Rouge are not, are not very evident in the narration of the museum and the curation of the museum. I mean, you have to, you know, you don't, I, I think, for example, like the first time I visited, I had no idea that most of these people that you, mm-hmm. that you see in the pictures on the wall were Khmer, Khmer Rouge uh, cadre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's important to foreground that because, again, it, it points to the fact that, yes, there was this mechanism of victimization and horror that was happening, but it was a Khmer Rouge, at least in S21, uh, victimizing itself. I mean, there were other places where it wasn't just cadre who were being executed. It was everybody else, but right. everyone right. has a symbol. But this, these are the high-value prisoners, right. and that's yeah. it's just curious that that, that, that becomes the, the site when it has this complicated history. And, uh, right. Um, and the fact that you're right, you know, the Vietnamese have their own interests uh, in establishing a narrative of, of uh, Khmer Rouge atrocity here um, and to sort of erase or at least minimize the complications of the Vietnamese being present in Cambodia as simultaneous liberators and aggressors uh, yeah. was, was really crucial there, too. So, yeah, I mean, most most memorial sites museums, et cetera, are built on a simultaneous process of remembering and forgetting. So you're absolutely right that 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 Tuol Sang or S21 does this for the Vietnamese presence. And Maya Lin's memorial, remember, commemorates the 58,000 American dead, but has nothing to say about the three or six million Vietnamese, Cambodian, Laotian dead, which you might argue is beyond the purview of a Vietnam veterans memorial. But a lot of South Vietnamese veterans would say we're Vietnam veterans too. Absolutely, two hundred twenty-five thousand or so South Vietnamese soldiers died in the war, and they're not featured at this memorial either. And when South Vietnamese soldiers have petitioned to be included in American memorials about the war, they, as far as I know, they've been roundly rejected. So that process of remembering and forgetting is present in American memorials as well. Right, right. And you know, uh, staying with with uh, the Cambodia thread here, um, one of the things that. Um, uh, I thought was missing from the book, if I can politely say that, was um, uh, Vietnam's a Vietnam, right? So Vietnam invades um, uh, Pol Pot's uh, uh, Khmer Rouge Cambodia in, in 1978 and quickly topples the government. But then this starts uh, a decade of Vietnamese occupation. And this is when the, the landmines are laid and, and the, you know, the, the suffering continues. How can, can you, can you speak to this? Have you, have you worked on this at all? Looked at the, um, the legacy of the war in Cambodia, what historians call the Third Indochina War, for Vietnamese memory. Well, I, I, I deal with it a little bit more in my course, but apparently uh, okay. not so much in the book. But yeah. you know, I mean, I think that it's, it's certainly the case that again, part of the, the all the irony about about this whole war is that how quickly 
victorious Vietnam went from being an icon of global resistance and hero heroism to becoming its own little imperial power in mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. And this, I think, is simply a repetition of the past. One of the reasons why Cambodians hate Vietnamese people is not just because of the 1979 Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia, but the fact that you know <laughs> Vietnam had already invaded Cambodia like centuries before and oh, yeah. <laughs> half the land, you know, yeah. uh, to become South Vietnam. So. You know, for, for Vietnam, of course, this war, like every war, is a process of remembering and forgetting uh, that this war was supposed to be Amer Vietnam's way of defending itself against Khmer Rouge incursions, which really were taking place in the South mm -hmm. uh, and liberating Cambodia. But of course, it was also a terrible, bloody war of occupation that Vietnamese people were terrified of fighting it. You know, like, for example, when I was growing up in the 80s, my parents' way of, of trying to instill lessons in me was saying, be thankful we brought you to the United States because if we didn't, you'd be you'd be fighting in Cambodia right now. And I was like, yeah, was yeah, you'd be, a, you'd be a young soldier, yeah, in the late well, 80s. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it was Vietnam's Vietnam in that sense. I just hate using that term because it yeah. just, just keeps repeating the idea of Vietnam as being a, a war. Right. But yeah, right. no surprise that the Vietnamese have not been able to deal with it in terms of narrative memory any more than uh, you know, other countries have been able to deal with their own contradictory wars. Probably the closest that the Vietnamese have been able to deal with it uh, has been through Dung Nhat Minh's film. Um, uh, uh, oh shoot, what's it, what's the title uh, of the film? It's about the widow who who won't tell her her family that her husband has died in the war. She gets a letter. Oh, in the right, movie. right, yeah, yeah. It's only um, considered to be one of Vietnam's best movies, and it is a very powerful movie, which. Um, so embarrassed to have forgotten right now its title but that that the war is actually never mentioned i mean what war it is is never mentioned in there but it's almost undoubtedly the war either the war in cambodia or the border war with china that immediately ensued uh the vietnamese invasion in 1970 1979 mm -hmm. but you know examples like this um are few and far between so it just again speaks to the the inability of, of many countries and mo many peoples to try to grapple with things that are contradictory to their own national imagination. Right, right. Yeah, and, and again, one of the things I really love about this book is, I um, mean, the, the the transnational component. I mean, obviously, it's it's one foot in America, one foot in Vietnam. Uh, we talked about how uh, you worked in the the South Korean component. Cambodia is very, very important for your story. I mean, it, it actually finishes with you visiting um, uh, Pol Pot's grave out in far-flung uh, and Long Veng uh, uh, province. Um, and you also spend uh, a good deal of time, and this made me very happy as a professor at Sacramento State, where we have a very large and significant Hmong uh, student um, uh, community, that you, you talk about the Hmong experience. And could you say a few words there? Why was that important to bring in? Um, this is m one of the least known aspects of the war to most Americans. Um, so could you sure. say a few words? Sure. By the way, the, the title of the film that I couldn't recall yeah. When the Tenth Month Comes by Dan okay. Men, right? Right, When the uh, Tenth Month uh, you know, Comes. That, that movie was made in the early, made in 1978, actually, which is the same year that, uh, Apocalypse Now was released, but if you compare the two movies, Apocalypse Now, this global blockbuster, uh, when the tenth month comes, looks like it was shot in the 1950s in black and white. You know, but that's just like the difference again in industrial memorial power. Um, well, you talked about the the asymmetry, right? Yeah, the asymmetry here, and that doesn't reduce the emotional power of when the tenth month comes yeah. because when I show it to my students, my students are really moved by it. But again, you can't compare 
you know, the, the look of these two movies. And of course, that's what determines box office to such a large extent. Now, as for the Hmong, obviously the Hmong played a huge role in the war. And um, uh, they fought on both sides. And the reason they fought on both sides was due to the, their colonial history of being colonized by the French and some Hmong accepting that and some Hmong rejecting that. And so the Hmong who supported the French uh, uh, moved on to support the, uh, the Americans. And I thought it was important to talk about the Hmong because the war was enormously devastating for them. It, it, for, the, for the ones who fought for the Americans, some estimates say that a quarter of the Hmong died uh, who were fighting for the American side. And yet most Americans have no idea who the Hmong people are <laughs> about mm-hmm. this history, which is why it's called the secret war about the role of the CIA and secretly building and training this army and so on and so forth. So it's absolutely crucial to, to bring this history forth, but it's also crucial because the Hmong are people without a country. I mean, they exist on the, on the, in the highlands and on the borders of various countries uh, in Southeast Asia. And so they themselves are, are um, marginalized and minoritized in every national context. Uh, and they paid the price for it. Um, and so that was, that was just the most basic reason for, for including their stories, especially when, when the only times the Hmong have been remembered in the American context have been either to turn their experience into a comedy, um, as in this horrible movie called Air America with Mel right. Gibson. It's, it's, it's really Robert bad. Kennedy it's Jr. really a bad terrible, film. Terrible movie. Yeah. Um, and or or appropriating in some other weird way, like you know uh, Clint Eastwood's um, Grand Torino. So, Hmong stories are brought out in the American context only to turn them into stories that affirm American liberalism and American uh, rescue of of these poor people. When in fact it was the Hmong who were rescuing Americans. You know the, the reason the Hmong were deployed. One of the reasons was so that they could rescue downed American downed pilots. pilots who yeah. were flying over bombing Laos in these secret campaigns or flying over Laos to bomb North Vietnam. And the Hmong were, were absolutely crucial in this uh, particular effort. Now, the other side of it is that in Southeast Asia, it, you know, the, the Hmong who supported the, uh, the Americans were then vilified after the war and hunted down in communist Laos and suffered terribly there uh, as well. And so they were also erased and, and suppressed there. So again, just really, really crucial to talk about their experiences. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. We, we've taken up quite a bit of your time, but I've just got a few quick questions before uh, before we let you go. Um, what are you currently working on? What's uh, what, what's coming next? Uh, well, I finished the sequel to The Sympathizer called The Committed. Um, Great. In March 2021, delayed due to COVID. And <laughs> okay. from, I guess I can write another book. I, I have to write this nonfiction book which is going to be about everything, you know, it's going to be about memoir and about America and about storytelling and about being a refugee and probably about COVID now, since I'm, I have to write it during the time of COVID. <laughs> well, we'd love to get you back on to talk about the sympathizer and the committed. If, uh, if, if that works Absolutely. out, um, I mean, the sympathizer is just a, a, a wonderful novel also on my list of, of regular Christmas gifts. Um, and finally, the traditional question we have on the podcast, um, can you recommend two related books on, uh, on these subjects that you, uh, you think highly of? I'll, I'll recommend two quite different books, mm-hmm. uh, simply because I enjoyed reading them more than anything else. One is Svetlana Boehm's The Future of Nostalgia, mm. which is a very readable, poetic book about uh, memory, but, but even I mean, memory in general, and or these different nostalgic forms, which were, were influential for me thinking about Vietnamese refugee memory. And a lot of her book is spent dealing with um, Eastern European immigrant memory in the United States. And the other one is, is 
again, Paul Ricoeur's Memory History Forgetting, which is a gigantic thousand page tome about those three key words. And I understood maybe a half to two thirds of the book, uh, which is no reason to not read a book. You know, I think <laughs> it's just magic. I mean, it's magisterial and it's so enormously insightful about uh, memory history forgetting um, and in its own way, very poetic as well. And so struggling through that book taught me a great deal about those three terms. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And thank you for speaking with us today. Um, um, this, that, this is just fabulous. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks. So, uh, yeah. It's been a real pleasure. So I'm Michael Van, and this has been a conversation with Professor Viet Thanh Nguyen, author of Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War. This has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.